0: So the fear of some version of hell is a motivator, has been, is used that way. And while this kind of fear motivation can be effective, it is clearly also at times oppressive uh, when it causes someone to doubt their intrinsic worth as a human being, as a child of God, this use of the law can and does lead to death. There are a number of words that we encounter sometimes and we wonder, I wonder you know, where that comes from or even what that word means. And sometimes uh, we can trace it back to the scriptures. There's some connection back to some word or phrase from the Bible. There's, uh, there's a, a word called Jeremiahad. Anybody heard of a Jeremiah? Yeah. So when you see that um, that word, it, it has a connection to the prophet Jeremiah and the prophecies of Jeremiah. Here's a definition from a, a dictionary. Jeremiah is a long literary work, usually in prose, but sometimes in verse in which the author bitterly laments the state of society and its morals in a serious tone of sustained invective and always contains a prophecy of society's imminent downfall. So we can see when we hear a passage such as the one Rachel just read for us from Jeremiah, why that connection would be made. I mean, Jeremiah is a trip. I mean, when she was reading the first part of that passage, uh, you, you get this sense of, 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 of the uh, aggression that comes from this prophet. And... His dismay is so clearly evident. So, the logic of a Jeremiah goes simply like this this is what you've done wrong, and therefore, this is what is about to happen to you. Uh, Some Jeremiah's end there with uh, doom and gloom and destruction, Uh, but others uh, indicate that if this terrible behavior Uh, were to change, there is a possibility that, in this case, that God may relent. Uh, The word Jeremiah then is a spin on the name of the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, And Jeremiah's times could hardly have been more difficult or terrible for the people. Jerusalem had been sacked. It had been overrun by the the violent uh, Babylonians. The temple had been reduced to rubble. Imagine the holy place of of worship that people felt was the very seat of the presence of God and appeared to be permanent uh, in rubble and many of the people driven off or dragged off into exile in Babylon. This is what's happening. This uh, is the context into which Jeremiah prophesies. And for most of the 52 chapters, Jeremiah is, is pretty much just saying, you had it coming. This is what you get. Mm? And why? Uh, and every once in a while, from Jeremiah comes this little sprig, this rose in the desert, this little whisper of hope, which we got at the, uh, near the end of this reading today. Sing to the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hands of evildoers. Uh, Jeremiah will proclaim that God will shape a new covenant with God's people. The old covenant was, of course, the law. Uh, The law, you might say, was the ultimate regulatory uh, agency in the sky. Ten basic rules with um, 600-plus spin-offs that we as God's people are to follow. God gave it, you obey it, or else is the prophet's message. It's simple. And most of the book of Jeremiah reminds Israel that they have not obeyed God's law. They haven't lived within the gift of the giving of the law. And so what Jeremiah is saying, here comes the or else. This new covenant Jeremiah speaks of, Uh, will be something else, however. Through Jeremiah, God offers this amazing and audacious hope that springs up from the cracked earth. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. People won't even need to teach one another God's law any longer, Jeremiah says, because they'll already have it within them. They won't need all the regulations because hearts will already be changed. Now, there are a number of reasons that people do the right thing. We can think about it in our own lives. A number of motivations we have to do what we perceive to be the right thing thing, to make good choices, and there are at least four biggies, so I want to tick through them quickly. The first three are pretty good, but they're never, you know, good enough. Uh, The fourth is probably good enough, but it's so against the grain of of, of the cynical world that people often doubt that it's even possible. So one reason for people to do the right thing is just fear of the consequences if, if, if we do not. You do the right thing because if you don't, you're going to get it. Very simple. Every parent, every child is familiar with this moral logic. Um, Share your Legos, or I'm going to send you to your room, right? Be home on time, or you'll be grounded, and so on. And this moral motivation follows us into adulthood, we know. Uh, Don't speed, or you'll maybe get a ticket. Watch what you eat, pay your taxes, don't smoke, or else, or else, or else. And of course, there is the cosmic religious version. Do the right thing in this life, or you'll end up, you know where, in the next. This one's been used... Some version of hell has been used throughout the ages to try and motivate certain behaviors or discourage others. So the fear of some version of hell is a motivator, has been, is used that way. And while this kind of fear motivation can be effective, it is clearly also at times oppressive uh, When it causes someone to doubt their intrinsic worth as a human being, as a child of God, this use of the law can and does lead to death. Well, Another motivator for people trying to do the right thing in addition to fear is good old-fashioned guilt. Hmm? Do the right thing because if you don't, you're just going to feel bad about yourself. Nobody likes that. The truth is, of course, that a passage through some guilt... Is exactly what you and I ought to feel every once in a while. Guilt is a place all of us need to visit uh, simply because we're so painfully far from perfect. I mean, I think part of our Lutheran culture uh, is pretty good at this uh, reality. We are. Quite willing to recognize this, we, you know, it's in our theology. Simil justus et peccator. We are at the same time saint, but also always sinner. We do things that are wrong. We say things that are hurtful. We ought to feel guilty and fess up and resolve it. So you do need to visit guilt, but you dare not live there because if you live there, instead of visiting. Guilt can devolve into shame, and shame is a whole other matter altogether. Shame's core message is that you are not a good enough human being. You're not worthy. This is a message in direct opposition to the core message of the gospel, God loves you so much and chooses to take your sin and die with it and give you back forgiveness in life. Another popular motivator, the third trying to shape behavior, is reward. Kind of the flip coin of the punishment. Do the right thing because maybe it'll come back to you. Maybe even multiplied. Again, there's profound truth in this. There can be deep satisfaction in knowing that you have made the right choice, you've done the right thing. In other words, sometimes doing the right thing for moral or compassionate or selfless reasons is its own reward. You can just feel better about yourself. On the other hand, a version of this rewards-based motive fuels the false prosperity gospel being preached, peddled, By so many flashy, self-assured, often televised ministries. Give this, get that. Transactional relationship to the Lord. Again, there's truth here in some measure. We do reap as we sow. Kindness often begets kindness. Grace kindles grace. Right inspires right in return. All of these motivations for moral behavior, punishment, guilt, reward, come under the general category of the law. The old covenant that Jeremiah is railing about most of the time. The problem with the law, the problem with regulations, whether they be the Ten Commandments or the posted speed limit, is always the same problem. As rules and, and regulations may indeed change outward behavior sometimes, but they tend not to change the inner person. They don't change the human heart. Clarence Jordan is a theologian, a Bible scholar. He was instrumental in starting Habitat for Humanity. He was writing about this understanding of The law, and and he used an interesting metaphor, he said the law was about chaining a vicious dog to a tree, chaining a vicious dog to a tree, and saying that because that dog has never bitten anyone, that's a good dog. Jordan's point was that the extent of the dog's goodness would be dependent upon the strength of that chain. The prophet Jeremiah, wild-eyed, hard-nosed prophet that he was, offers us a fourth reason to do the right thing, a motivation that's kind of beyond the law, following the rules and regulations. There will be a new covenant God declares through Jeremiah, not like the one I made with their ancestors. The covenant had been rules and regulations, do's and and don'ts written on stone, law that demanded outward conformity. In Jeremiah's hopeful vision, you do the right thing because, well, you've desired to do it. Not so much because you're afraid what will happen if you don't. Not because you're feeling guilty if you don't. Not because you hope you'll get some reward if you do. Rather, you do the right thing because, believe it or not, you've actually come to desire the right thing. God has written it on your heart. Now, Lutherans don't talk about this as much as we probably ought to. I know in the boxes and boxes of sermon notes that I have in my office and scroll through sermon titles that are on my computers that I've written over more than 30 years, you'd have a hard time finding half a dozen that are related to this theme of trying to behave better, (laughs) what you ought to do. But at the heart of our faith lies this daring hope. Believe it or not, God can actually change the human heart. And we'll never get all the way there on this side of the veil. We we know that. We'll always need a little bit of the fear of God. An occasional dose of guilt. A reward for good behavior it can be helpful, it can be inspiring. But we can't let go of the hope that God is working in us to raise up our better selves, that we can try to be better. Because, along with little Arnie in the waters of these baptismal waters, because we are first, before we get started after any of this fear or guilt, or reward, before any of it we are claimed and loved and chosen and forgiven by our gracious God. This is who we are in the world. God who wraps us up in Christ's own dying and rising. As Paul said in that reading from Romans, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him and a resurrection like his. This is good news for all of us. If not for the claim made on us, the promises made in these baptismal waters, it'd be too risky to try to be a good person out there. Uh, Because how could we ever know that we're doing enough or that we're doing it just right? Uh, We couldn't. Uh, That uh, Luther called a terror. And he was, in fact, Martin Luther, terrorized by this very train of thought until he came upon the gracious claim on his life, the righteousness that is not earned but given. So, along with uh, little Arnold this morning, we are all reminded that we are baptized, chosen, forgiven, claimed children of God now you can go risk see if you can't do better this week than you did last week because your eternal salvation does not depend on it that was sealed right here huh? so we go in peace to love and serve the lord thanks be to god